morning, everyone. A junior church, you are dismissed, but hear me real quick, kids. There is ice out on the cement, so do not run. We don't want you getting hurt. Okay, so please walk. Um, no jumping. I think I heard that. And so, also, if everybody could um, look to the north, nope, sorry, the west over here, three quarters of the way back, is a, one of our elders named Carlisle. It is his birthday today, so make sure you tell him. And at 1030, everybody needs to look at him just to make sure he's okay. Today we are in, oh, tonight. Don't go look at him at 1030 tonight. That, that would scare Sheila. <laughs> so today we are um, in chapter 2 of Acts, and it's one of my favorite chapters, but we're not getting to my favorite part today. There's a whole lot in this chapter, so we're just going to jump right in, okay? So the book of Acts is said to be the, the history book of the church, how it all began. Uh, today, you're going to get a big lesson on Greek. Okay, I've studied and looked at a lot of Greek this last week. I have so much fun with it. I'm going to share a lot of it with you. The word ekklesia is commonly translated in the Greek to church. Um, the church could not be formally founded, started, until the Holy Spirit came into God's people. Without the Holy Spirit, the early believers would not have been able to grow, spread across the land, and endure all the way to us today. Now, D.L. Moody gave a great illustration about the Holy Spirit, and I was going to read it to you, and I thought, well, why read it? I'll just show you. So this glass is half full of water. How do I get the air out? What do I need to do to get the air out so there's no more air in this jar? What? I'm here mumbling. Oh, come on. I, need, I don't need the right answer first. I need the... So I was hoping somebody would do like D.L. Moody's and they say, well, suck the air out. What's going to happen if you suck the air out? Okay, more mumbling. I'm getting old apparently. I'm not hearing... It'll displace it, the glass could crack, and then air gets back in. The only way, yes, the only way to get the air out is to fill it all the way up. There's still more. I don't want to make a mess. Um, so that's how to get the air out of the jar. The only way to get the Holy Spirit to um, in a Christian, okay? All the air was removed. Let me get back to this. We cannot have victory over sin by simply removing sin out of our life, by sucking all the negative or the bad things out of our life. You have to be filled with something to take its place. And that's what D.L. Moody was trying to say. The only way to have victory over sin is to be filled with something other than sin, to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And that's what we're going to see. And you're going to see this Time and time again throughout the book of Acts. A lot of people, and I've read this, it said it's called the Acts of the Apostles, is one of the names of the book. It really should be at, called the Acts of the Holy Spirit within God's people. So let's start in chapter 2, verse 1. On the day of Pentecost, all the believers were meeting together in one place. What is Pentecost? 
Let's just stop right there. What is Pentecost? The word Pentecost comes from Greek. Pentecost meaning 50th. It refers to the festival celebrated on the 50th day after Passover, known as the Feast of Weeks, or the Feast of 50 Days. If you go to the Old Testament, you'll discover Pentecost was one of the Jewish feast days. When I read that, I think food. It's a feast, okay? Um, only they didn't call it Pentecost. That's the Greek name, and I'm not good with Hebrew, so we're going to stick with Greek. Um, the Jews called it the Feast of Harvest or Feast of Weeks. So the first church was gathering together at the same time Jews were gathering together for Pentecost. So the first church is gathering together on the Pentecost when everybody, Jewish nature, was also celebrating harvest. Okay, verse 2. Suddenly, there was a sound from the heaven, like a roaring of a mighty windstorm, and it filled the house where they were sitting. Then what looked like flames or tongues, tongues of fire appeared and settled on each of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. We're going to stop right there for a minute and kind of camp for a bit. Um, This event right here has caused many people to ask the question, what is the Holy Spirit? I mean, what is it? How, How does it work? What does it do? There are lots of ideas and theories about the Holy Spirit. People have been confused by the nature, the purpose, and the power of the Holy Spirit for years. I could stand up here and try to explain the Holy Spirit all day. I could give you examples, analogies, and discussions. All of those things have already been done. And through all the years of being in the church, people have heard all of those things, and yet there is still confusion. What if if the reason why there's so much confusion... It's because we try to explain the Holy Spirit, which is unexplainable. It is unknowable. How many of you have been married for over 20 years? Great. Yeah, me too. Fellas, those who raise their hand, can you adequately describe everything about your wife? (laughs) Why? As soon as you would say it, what would happen? It would change. And that's not a bad thing. What if the Holy Spirit is even more so? Just when you think you have a grasp on it, it it reveals a little bit more of itself. What if the Holy Spirit, when we try to explain it, we are trying to fit it inside a box? We are trying to make it this neat little package, and yet the Holy Spirit cannot be contained with thoughts or power. It is beyond all of that. Instead of trying to explain it, in our words, in my words, why don't we just let God explain what the Holy Spirit does in His words, which is Scripture. There are two main words in Scripture used in the New Testament for the Holy Spirit. uh, Paraclete and Panuma. Paraclete, which is up here, um, paraclete comes from parakletos, which means advocate or helper. Now, real quick, it's a legal term. It's more like a lawyer advocate, somebody who goes on your behalf. And Jesus talks about this. Jesus says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another, the advocate. 
encourager, counselor, who will never leave you. Parakletos is a verbal adjective used for somebody in a courtroom. They go on your behalf and they advocate for you. The word has a meaning of one who counsels, who is going to guide and teach you. It's filled with a very complex meaning. So the Holy Spirit replaces Jesus in his own words. He's leaving, so the Holy Spirit comes as an advocate to help us, as a witness to teach us, as a counselor to guide us. That's parakletos. The second main Greek word used as the Holy Spirit is pneuma. It's an ancient Greek word for breath or spirit. Pneuma is the word here used in Acts chapter 2. The breath of God, the spirit of God is how it's used. When the um, New Testament Christians translated the Old Testament, so they went to the Hebrew, and because people didn't learn Hebrew, they would translate the Hebrew into Greek. And so this is very key because I don't know Hebrew, so I have to go and study the Greek of the Old Testament. So when they translated the Old Testament into Greek, they used the Hebrew word, which I'm not saying, and translated it as panuma. Okay? And uh, so you can see the Hebrew, ruach. That's how it is, ruach. I had to see the English version of it, um, which is ends to me. It looks like ends. But it means breath, wind, or spirit. Now listen to this. This is in Genesis. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was formless and empty, and darkness covered over the deep waters, and the ruach, the spirit of God was hovering over the, the waters, or the surface of the waters. When they translated that into Greek, they put panuma. So I can just tell you, panuma is pretty equivalent to ruach. At least New Testament Christians thought, though, thought so. Ruach is the spirit of God, the wind of God, hovering over the surface the wind, the spirit, okay? Now take that and let's go back to verse 2 in Acts. Suddenly there was a sound from heaven like the roaring of a mighty windstorm. And it filled the whole house where they're sitting. And they looked like flames of tongues. A fire appeared and settled on each one of them. And everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, began to speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them the ability. The wind, the breath, the ruach of God, once again, from the creation of the world, is now evident in the creation of the church. Here's this mighty windstorm, and it was the Spirit that came. God breathed life into his creation, the world, and his church. The Holy Spirit is a real person of the Trinity, who came to reside within us, Jesus' true followers. The Holy Spirit is not a vague, ethereal um, shadow or an impersonal force. I, I heard one guy say the Holy Spirit is like the force of Star Wars. No, that, that's a little way too wrong. Okay? I like Star Wars, but that's mixing things the wrong way. The Holy Spirit is a person equal in every way with God the Father and God the Son. And honestly, many times in churches, we elevate God the Father, we elevate God the Son, and we dismiss God the Spirit. 
And Jesus said, one is coming who is greater. Because it's going to fill that void, cross that bridge that he couldn't do, and enter into us. Now let's look at the next few verses. Verses that have caused controversy. Verses that have caused division in believers and churches. Verses 3 and 4 say the Holy Spirit filled the early church. Think back to that that glass of water. It filled the early believers. Uh, Actually, Scripture says it filled everyone present in that upper room. Um, Which, if you recall, included, if you go back to last week's sermon... More than just the apostles, because Mary was there, the other Mary was there, as well as some other women, and Jesus' brothers. And it said in Scripture, all of them were filled with the Holy Spirit. Fire appeared above each one of their heads, and they started speaking in other languages. All right, let's get back to Greek again, okay? So, the word here for tongues which is what's caused a lot of commotion and controversy. The word here is glossa, um, a Greek word meaning tongue, physical tongue, or language. It generally, 90% of the time, means spoken languages. The early believers here started speaking tongues or languages. And here's where many people want to back up and say, wait a minute, okay? They don't like the idea of this because... That means the Holy Spirit is controlling them and they don't know what's going on. They've lost control. Um, First off, when you submit to Christ, when you submit to God, you are submitting control and letting him control you. So if you don't like that idea, you need to go back to submission. There have been debates and arguments and divisions on what does it mean to speak in tongues. Um, We have enough division in this world. Okay? We have a tremendous amount of division in this world. We don't need more of it, especially within the church. Jesus prayed in the garden that his followers, all of his followers, would be united. United as much as he was united with God the Father. That is united. So that means you and I need to be united with Jesus and with each other as much as he was united with God the Father. We need unity. So when it comes to this speaking in tongues, speaking in glossa, I don't care what you think, and you shouldn't care what I think at the moment. We need to go to what God says. Okay, so let's do this. I've been approached in many times with questions about this whole topic, about speaking in tongues. So here's what it is. The, the word glossa appears in the Greek New Testament 50 times. If it's repeated, it's important. So it's in here 50 times, that means it's important. It is used to refer to the physical organ of the tongue, your actual tongue, in James chapter 3, verse 5. It's the only way that verse would make sense. Once in reference to the flame-looking tongue-like things that we just read in Acts. Once in a metaphorical sense is referring to the speech or statement such as, my tongue was glad, meaning my, my words. It's not like my tongue actually smiled. That's not what they're saying here, okay? And as far as I understand, the remaining uses of that word always means known languages. When our Lord predicted the gift of tongues, the only mention of tongues in the four Gospels, Mark 16, 17, look what he said. These signs will accompany those who believe in it. My name will be in my name. They will cast out demons. They will speak with new tongues. Right here, there are people said, see, new tongues. Well, I, I, I want to tell you something. 
um, the adjective new can only mean they were going to speak in languages new to them. Languages they had not learned or used until that time. If I say the Russian language is new to me, am I saying that it's a brand new language? No, I'm saying I don't know it, but I have just learned it. It's new to me. Um, I don't understand. I, I took a year and a half of French. Can't speak much of it, but the French language is not new to me. I still hear phrases and words that I kind of understand, and I can, Bonjour, Don, uh, je m'appelle Donigoff, et vous? Is that new to you? It sounds like mumbling. So, I can read, I'm getting old too, I can read and understand just some of it, so it's not new to me. So what does this mean in context to this? Go to verse 4. Everyone present was filled with the Holy Spirit, began speaking in other languages as the Holy Spirit gave them this ability. At that time, there were devout Jews from every nation living in Jerusalem. Why were they there? Pentecost, okay? When they heard the loud sound, the Ruach, everyone came running, and they were bewildered to hear their own languages being spoken by the believers. They were completely amazed. How can this be, they examined? These people are from Galilee, and yet we hear them speaking in our own native languages. We can tell right away what is happening here. Luke uses a different adjective when he says they begin to speak in tongues. Um, the word other simply means other languages. It's not like they were actually speaking with new tongues. That's not, that, that can't be a valid translation. The context proves they were known languages. Because they came and they heard, hey, these little redneck people from Galilee are speaking our languages. We know they don't travel, they're Galileans. And yet they know every language we, we know. Since every man heard them speak in his own language, the word language here, um, diacoleto, is the word we get dialects from. The word glossa and dialectos are used synonymously. So they heard them speaking in their own dialect. They heard them speaking in their own language. Now, I still think this is really cool. I would love to have seen this. Let's go to verse 9. They said, after they said they were amazed by this, here we are, Parthians, Medes, Elamites, um, people from Mesopotamia, Judea, Capron. Look at all these places. Pontius, the province of Asia, Phrygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, and the areas of Libya around Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and converts to Judaism, Cretans, Arabs, and we have... And we all hear these people speaking in our own language about the wonderful things God has done. They just listed the known languages. This isn't some weird utterance. These are known languages that are identified in these different dialects. Now, it was a miraculous phenomenon which ena enabled the disciples to speak this language that they'd never learned. And here in Acts, this passage, we have... Tongue speaking in its original, pure, and unperverted form as God gave it. In each passage where the word tongue is mentioned, it always seems to mean one of the language associated with one of the nationalities and races around them. I see no reason, and I read a lot this week, no 
reason why anyone should raise the question as to tongues in these passages of Mark, Acts, and Revelation, meaning anything other than known languages. But, okay, you guys are like, where is he going with this? More serious problems arise in the interpretation of the 21 references of tongues in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 through 14. There are those who will tell you that the tongues in 1 Corinthians are ecstatic utterances not known by any person or country on earth. That is not my phrase. That's what I've actually been told. They base this conclusion on the term unknown, which appears in 1 Corinthians 14, 2, verse 4, 13, 14, 19, and 27. But the reader of this chapter of God's word must not fail to observe that the word unknown in that translation, listen to me, in every place where it appears is italicized. Do you know why it's italicized? Because it's not in the original Greek. That means later on it was added by somebody. So if it wasn't in the original Greek manuscripts, that means somebody added it. That means, in my mind, the way I understand, the Holy Spirit did not direct Paul to write unknown languages. Somebody else added that to what he already wrote. Which means I find no reason for changing the meaning of tongues in 1 Corinthians from weird ecstatic utterances to unknown languages. It just makes sense. It has to be known languages. In any other place, every other place, the word is used in Scripture... It means languages, no languages. Why would it be different in this one spot? So let's look at one of them. 1 Corinthians 14, 9. It's the same for you. If you speak to people in words they don't understand, how will they know what you are saying? You might as well be talking to empty space. My mom knows what it's like to talk to empty space. Most of you moms got that. My wife knows what it's like to talk to empty space. She's talking to the same empty space my mom talked to. If I speak, Jumapel Donikov, you can kind of guess, but what does Jumapel mean? I'm, if you don't understand it, is it helping you? Is it guiding you? Is it enriching you? Or is it just a waste of my breath? That's what he's saying here in 1 Corinthians 14. If nobody understands what you're saying, you might as well be speaking to empty space. There's no reason for anyone to speak unless it is intelligibly. That's what Paul is saying right here. The Greek word laleo means I speak, not I make noise. And when it says I speak, it means I converse and convey thoughts and knowledge. So, Little babies, they converse with you in a way. You, know, blah, 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 blah. you have to guess at what they're saying, right? Because they haven't learned. Like, that's a weird tongue. But they're not conversing in knowledge with you. The word in Scripture is never used for sound or noise. The tongue speaking in the New Testament was always in native languages of the people around them. The supernatural phenomenon which took place at uh, Pentecost was an exercise of the gift where all these different um, nationalities heard their own language spoken by redneck Galileans, which is what made them awesome. And they actually gave credit. Look at what we're hearing from these Galileans about what God has done. They knew this was from God, not from those guys. So let me just say this. 
It would be an arbitrary and strange interpretation of Scripture that would take the making of or speaking in tongues anything other than known languages. There is no trace of scriptural evidences of tongues um, being heard by anyone that's incoherent or incomprehensible babbling that just doesn't fit with what Scripture says. So why does God even give the gift of speaking in tongues if it is so weird? Why did God give the gift of speaking in tongues? To find that answer, we're going to get right back into this, into Scripture. Most people who try to support the idea of speaking in unknown words or in unknown tongues use 1 Corinthians 14, which we just did. So let's look at that again. 14, verse 22. So you see that speaking in tongues is a sign not for believers, but for unbelievers. Prophecy, however, is a benefit for believers, not unbelievers. Speaking in languages is a sign for unbelievers. That means the gift of speaking in languages, speaking in tongues, first is to communicate the gospel message. That's what it was for, so that they could speak their language and bring the message of Christ to them. The word sign in the New Testament is often um, conveying a divinely given message. It's emphasized in John 20, if you want to look there. The signs or miracles were never performed, where, whether Jesus did it or the apostles, they were never performed without a purpose, which was to bring the gospel message to that person. Always. Why did Jesus feed the 5,000? So he could continue to teach them. Why did he heal? So he could reach them with the message. Why were the apostles, the disciples, given the same power? So that they could spread the message of Christ. It was not to just go, whoa, that's pretty cool. It was for a purpose. The gifts were never given for self-satisfaction or self-glory. Speaking in tongues is a gift given by the Holy Spirit, but like any other gift, it can be misused. How many of you have ever been given a gift and you use it the wrong way? We've got one honest couple. Um, I was given a screwdriver once by my daddy, and I was using it as a uh, chisel to knock the ice out of a freezer. Guess what happened? I broke the freezer. It went through the wall, and um, Freon started pouring into everything, and we had to leave the house. That's not what a screwdriver is used for. And you know what happened to my screwdriver? It was taken away. Now, the gifts of tongues, the gifts of the Holy Spirit can be misused. Paul condemns such thinking of using it for our own personal glory or satisfaction. It is not a sign of spiritual maturity that I have this sign or that sign. Um, the purpose of the gift of tongues is primarily to speak, to communicate God's message to unbelievers. And proof is right there in Acts chapter 2. We are hearing in our own language about the wonderful things God has done, not what these people have done. Later on in Acts chapter 10, you come to the second mention of speaking in tongues or languages. Acts 10, starting in verse 44. Even as Peter was saying these things, the Holy Spirit fell on all those who were listening to the message. Message. What message? The message of salvation of Christ. The Jewish believers who came with Peter were amazed that the gift of the Holy Spirit had been poured out on the Gentiles too. For they heard them speaking in other tongues and praising God. Now again, tongues, does that mean a new tongue popped in their mouth or next to them? 
So why did these people speak in a different language? To give proof of their conversion. That Cornelius and those who had heard the gospel and accepted Christ as their Lord and Savior were now part of the church. And then the third and last time tongues is mentioned in just the book of Acts, Acts 19, verse 5 and 6. As soon as they heard this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. And when Paul laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them, and they spoke in other tongues and prophesied. Again, the purpose was missionary and evangelic. Uh, evangelistic, sorry. When Paul came to Ephesus, he encountered 12 disciples of John the Baptist. They said, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you believed? When they didn't know what they're talking about. And so he had them baptized in Jesus, not in John, and then laid hands on them. When he learned they were not saved, he said, you must trust Jesus for your salvation, not the words of John. And since they were already saved, um, they thought they were already saved, the Holy Spirit didn't do anything until they were actually saved and came in to confirm that they were now part of the family of God. When they submitted to true faith and baptism, they were filled with the Holy Spirit. That's the progression order you see there. And so the purpose was first to teach people about Christ, and secondly, to confirm the gospel message, that they heard it, and now they can go share it again. It's not just a communication sign, it's a confirming sign. So those are the two reasons in Scripture you can see about speaking in tongues. And these are the only instances in in these few books where the Bible, in Acts, 1 Corinthians, Ephesians, Mark, and a little in Revelations, or not in Ephesians, sorry. No other epistle talks about it, about speaking in tongues. I have heard, let me get to a little, I've heard people say that in order to, um, that a person has to be able to speak in tongues to confirm that they are a true believer in Christ. I have been told that when you speak in tongues, it proves that you are a real Christian. Then there's a problem. Well, let me go here. A lady I know went to Russia on a mission trip. While riding the train, she was sitting in the train, and the seats face each other. So if you're an um, introvert, you would hate it, okay, because you're facing strangers. Well, Janelle was sitting there, and the man across the, the way started asking her questions. And Janelle started telling well, we're on a mission trip, and um, told them all about that, and then started sharing scripture, and was telling her what scripture was, and about Jesus, and all that. And the man listened, and asked questions a few times, and, and then the next station, he thanked her, and he got off the train. She turned and looked at the rest of her companions, who were sitting on this side, and they were all jaw-dropped, staring at her. And she goes, what is the problem? And they said, how did you learn Russian so well? I wasn't speaking Russian. He was talking to me in English. And the rest of her group said, no, we heard everything in Russian. Janelle doesn't know Russian. She had to have an interpreter with her for the rest of the mission. But why was it that one time everybody heard Russian except for her? I I think the guy heard Russian. I think it was only her because she was speaking in a language about the gospel message. I've heard of a family that went to Mexico. They were helping to build houses and things like that on a missionary trip, and they had their seven, six, seven-year-old boy. And the boy, you know what little boys are going to do when there's a dirt road? They're going to play. And these other little boys, little Mexican boys, were playing with this, this guy. And all of a sudden, this little boy 
while playing in the dirt, started speaking perfect Spanish, telling all these kids about Jesus. He didn't learn it from Dora the Explorer. Okay? How was he able to do that? So much so that the interpreter who was with them said, why didn't you tell me he spoke? And the parents were like, he doesn't speak it. And the little boy had no idea he was doing it. He was just telling them about his best friend that he loves named Jesus. Is the purpose of communication of speaking in tongues, the purpose is for speaking about Christ and nothing else. If it is true that a person needs to speak in some weird tongue, ecstatic utterance to prove they are a believer of God, then I'm not a believer. I've never done that. I've never experienced it. And here's the bigger problem. Someone else in the Bible also never experienced it. Nowhere in Scripture has it ever communicated that an individual ever spoke in an unintelligible, ecstatic language, and his name is Jesus. He must not be a real believer by that thinking then. Let's move on, okay? Um, Verse 5 says in Acts that they were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. The people who gathered there in the first church that day were very religious. They were devout in strict acts called the Jewish religion. To me, this clearly shows there was something different about what Peter and the rest of those that were gathered there were doing. There's something very revealing about what these people are going to get out of Peter's message of Christ. Something they've never heard before. They notice these are just Galileans. But there's something important here. There's something about God here. And it all started when this wind came into the people. When Ruach, Penuma, Perkletas all came. And because the Spirit showed up so much that it shook the surrounding area. So much that when it filled the believers, they couldn't stop talking. I've seen people on Facebook say to all the girls who got on their report cards, talks too much. I'm going to tell you right now, it's not just girls who got that. There are some things you just don't want to stop talking about. And when the Holy Spirit fills you, you're going to want to talk even more and more. So much so that the rest of the world is going to go, wow. These people are just from St. Joe. But listen how they talk about all that God has done. And it's not going to be a credit to you or me. It's going to be a credit to God. This at that time in Pentecost was something they'd never seen or heard. It wasn't something that they, hey, remember a couple years ago when we saw this or heard this sound? This was something brand new, and it opened the door to a once brash and foolish fisherman to step up, which we're going to get into next week, and preach the first recorded sermon of the church. So much so that Peter, who rejected Christ a month and a half before, now is saying in front of everybody, you killed Jesus, but he's still here to save you. They couldn't stop him. And it wasn't because he was a great speaker like me. It was because he was filled with the Holy Spirit. Those first listeners, 
Those first hearers were amazed at the message of Christ. This band of common people is now speaking all of these other known languages. And yet the message was still the same. It amazed them so much that a movement started. A tidal wave of faith grew that day and has never ceased. It all happened because of the Holy Spirit, because of Ruach, because of Parakletos, because the Holy Spirit said, Now is the time for God to invade and live within his people, and now we can show what darkness and real light is. This is what happens when people submit to the Holy Spirit. This is what happens when they let the Holy Spirit lead and guide them. They are able to stand. They are able to speak and share the message of Christ with conviction, with power, and with results. It's the Holy Spirit. It's not Peter. It's the Holy Spirit, not the early believers. It's the Holy Spirit that actually fills and guides this church. See, the Holy Spirit was not commanded by the early church. The early church did not take credit for the work of the Spirit, as we're going to see in the rest of the book of Acts. They simply submitted and allowed the Spirit to lead them and direct them. So while a lot of people are going to say, well, I want to know more about speaking in tongues, that's not the focus of this. What, what is the focus of these verses? The focus isn't, well, they spoke these unknown languages. The focus is that the Holy Spirit came, as Jesus promised, the Holy Spirit came and reached across the divide of sin and said, here, now you can come and live in and with God. Now, because of the Holy Spirit, Ruach can come in, violently shake out the darkness. And you can speak a new language, which is the gospel of Christ. I didn't understand the gospel when I was young. And then as I was taught, and as the Holy Spirit filled me, you couldn't get me to stop talking about it. It was a new language for me. It was a language of love, of grace, forgiveness, and mercy, and one that doesn't stop with me. It's one that needs to go to everyone. And so in that sense, I think there needs to be a lot more Christians speaking the language the tongue of the Holy Spirit. It wasn't the f- believers speaking in weird languages. The focus was God, the Spirit, God, the Spirit, filling his people, that the Holy Spirit gave clarity. I've heard so many people say, I just don't know what to say. Then submit to the Spirit. Let him guide you. Let him teach you. Let him tell you what to say. The Holy Spirit came so that more and more and more people would come to God. All through the book of Acts, we're going to see how the Holy Spirit guides people, grows the church, builds the kingdom of God. And it has nothing to do with the people. It always has something to do with the Spirit first. And then the submission of the people saying, I will go where you say. I will do what you want me to do because it's for your glory. We're going to see this in Peter. When he goes to somewhere, he doesn't want to go. We're going to see it where Paul doesn't get to go where he wants to go. And it's all in submission to following the Holy Spirit. It's not about coming to a church building. It's not about putting in your attendance. It's not about reading scripture. It's about living and submitting to what we say is true. 
And it's time we allow Ruach, we allow Paracletus to come in and fill us and empower us so we can be the church that does even more than what Peter said, than what they did that day. Go ahead and read the rest of the chapter. Be prepared for next week because they had a great invitation. And I think it's nothing compared to what we could do if we're willing to submit and allow the Holy Spirit to truly fill me, lead me, and, and control me and you. So will you do that? We're going to go back to the throne. I mean, earlier we sang, Holy Spirit, you are welcome here. And that was a song chosen by choice because it isn't we're just honoring God the Father and God the Son. We also need to honor and worship God the Spirit because they are all in one. And so he is welcome here. He is welcome here. And we need to go thank God. We need to go worship God that now he is in us. He isn't this far distant thing with the chasm of sin separating us. He is in us. Now we can go to Him. What a wonderful reason to worship Him. So let's stand and let's proclaim the glory and honor.